Half through the third chapter in the book of James, in the letter he writes, he asks a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? And then in the next chapter and a half, he answers it. And that's what we've been looking at. He describes the good life as deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And in addressing the challenges to humility and wisdom, James, in the text we'll look at today, puts the crosshairs on wealth and the affluence. And as he does so, he calls into question, especially in a powerful nation like ours, much of how we would define the good life. Now let's follow along. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It's in the worship folder. Take that off if you want to read along. Listen to what he says. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. seems like he says a couple things in addressing the whole idea of wealth and affluence and being in a powerful, affluent nation. Some things here that will make us uncomfortable. We'll have to wade our way through and figure out not only what is he saying, but how can we do the things he's going to tell us to do? Again, we live in a very powerful, very affluent nation. And, to, and so the things he's going to say, we, mm, but let's, let's work our way through it. We're in this together. So, um, I think what he says to them, and it seems like he has addressed materialism and slander as being problems inside the church. Now in talking about wealth and affluence, he not only limits his focus to within, but without. The reason why we know that is he's going to talk about those who fail to pay their harvesters and workers. And they're not a bunch of people within the community that he is writing to that have fields. They are the ones who work in the field. So there's not a lot of wealth within the Jewish Christians that James is referring to. They have moved from Jerusalem because of the persecutions and the famines, and as such, we've said before, they've lost their neighborhood and their livelihood. This is probably 15 to 20 years after the, um, Jesus came, and, and there was an initial period where everyone was selling their property as any had needs, and it was really a nice thing. But then subsequently, persecutions came, famines came, and they needed to move. Jewish Christians had to move out of Jerusalem into the outlying areas. So if you're a Jewish Christian, you're not going to fit in the Jewish community. And if you're a Jewish Christian, you're not going to fit in the Gentile community. You know what that means? That means relative to connections in terms of getting good jobs, goose egg. They can't get good jobs. And so they hire themselves out to work for wealthy landowners who don't take real good care of them. And so James is targeting wealth on a 
global perspective. Um, and what he seems to say is, your wealth is going, judgment is coming, and commence weeping. <laughs> your, your wealth is going. Look what it says. Your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. When we think about how we quantify wealth today, how do we quantify wealth? Stocks, bank accounts, stuff pretty much related to paper. You might have some things in your house. Some of you have little caches of gold maybe and silver and not so much these days. In those days, though, uh, you didn't deposit your money in a bank. So wealth was accumulated in garments and gold and silver. And it's stuff that was hard and tangible. And, and when you have garments as part of your riches, fabrics, you have to protect them from moths, and they get moth-eaten. Uh, gold and silver can corrode. And so that's what he's pointing to. Say, those things that you look to as being indicative of how wealthy you are, those things are rotting and corroding. It means, in a sense, they're temporary. You know, the things are that even gold and silver last a long time. He's pointing to its eventual destruction. The things that they would put the weight or the foundation of their security in, James says, is like Swiss cheese. Wealth doesn't last. That's his point. And there's an implicit judgment for the, the gold and silver is being corroded because it wasn't used. You know, it, it was given and it was hoarded. So... I'm keeping it nice and safe in this place within the house, and it's gathering dust and stuff like that. But James' point is that there's individuals to whom this money should have gone, harvesters and, and uh, workers in the field who were defrauded of their wages in order that the landowners could be able to have this little cache of wealth. And, and that's what James is describing. He says, your wealth is going and your judgment is coming. Very harsh words. It says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. The practices that help create such a cache of wealth are exposed, underpaying workers and harvesters. Um, so they deserved to get a fair compensation for the work that they did, and they are being undercompensated. And because the overhead is low, then there's more money for them to put in their pockets and to hoard away. They are living indulgent lives, and not only that, they're leveraging their wealth to obtain favorable verdicts in judicial claims. When it talks about murdering innocent men, they're not literally killing people but they're obtaining favorable verdicts in court cases. They have the money to kind of slip a, slip a mickey, slip a pin to somebody so that they can get a favorable verdict. They have the resources with which to turn justice in their favor. Um, individuals um, failed to pay the workmen. Uh, it may be that they wanted to wait until grain prices rose or they felt that the workmen had done a good enough job. Old Testament says that workmen are to be paid each evening, um, but they're not doing so, and the law of the land is protecting the landowners. 
and not protecting the workers. The workers, however, appealed to heaven. And God heard their cry. And that's what he's saying. Your wealth is going. And judgment is coming. Because although probably within the court system and with those who are powerful, the sense is that the poor are without advocates who advocates for the poor. In James's day, courts didn't, and so they might have felt distanced and dismissed. And what James says, no, 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 no. God notices. God notices. Um, rich of condemned and murdered innocent men. Again, he's not speaking of literal execution. He's probably thinking of lawsuits in which the rich took away the wages or land of the poor, left without adequate resources, perhaps they did die uh, undernourished, um, barely able to squeak, squeak out an existence. It doesn't seem that he's targeting the sins of commission, but the sins of omission. Um, ignoring the cries of the poor. This is a, poverty is a difficult reality. Again, we live in a time where we have a fairly, we have a very comfortable lifestyle living in America. Anybody ever visit a third world nation? Anybody ever, even within the um, Rosebud, within South Dakota? Uh, realities there that are like third world nations. Uh, anybody ever traveled to places that are, again, underdeveloped countries? Um, it's a difficult reality. Jeffrey Sachs wrote a book, The End of Poverty. He was a, an advisor to the United Nations and director of the um, Earth Institute there. And listen to what he says. He talks just, I'm not going to give you a bunch of stuff, but just some things from a global perspective concerning poverty. He says, currently, this was back in 2005 when he wrote this, Currently, more than 8 million people around the world die each year because they are too poor to stay alive. And um, he says every morning our newspapers could report, and they could do so, more than 20,000 people perished yesterday of extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is not even the poverty that exists in Rosebud. It's even more dire. The inability to be able to get the resources you need to live today, that's what extreme poverty is. And you see some of the images in Africa, and it's just... Um, and poverty is a difficult thing. You know, we have the sense that, oh, you know, you should just work hard. But what Jeffrey Sachs indicates, that poverty is tricky because there are some developing countries that can't climb on the ladder of success. They just don't have some basic things so that the rich are going to get richer and they're not going to be able to get on the first rung. Let me he read. When the preconditions of basic infrastructure, roads, power, and ports and human capital, health and education are in place, markets are powerful engines of development. What it means is that if you have basic things like a port and roads and water and some basic things, you can leverage will to be able to generate goods that can go to market. But if you lack some of those things, you're landlocked, you don't have a port, you don't have basic sanitation, the, uh, the ability to be able to generate and use effort to, to generate products is not there. It just isn't there. 
And so the world is increasing in terms of marketing and and you can't get on the first rung. That's what he says. Jeffrey Sachs says, without these preconditions, markets can cruelly bypass large parts of the world, leaving them impoverished and suffering without respite. He does say, the wealth of the rich world, the power of today's vast storehouses of knowledge, and the declining fraction of the world that needs help to escape from poverty all make the end of poverty a realistic possibility by the year 2025. And in this book, interesting book, he says if the developed nations could identify 0.7% of the gross national product, and if we could use that and create infrastructure to help developing nations, he indicates as part of the Millennium Developing Goals, something like that, that poverty could be eliminated worldwide by 2025. Um, But I just want to put that that poverty is is a complex issue, isn't it? It's not just material. It's sociological. It's theological. It has a number of things that trap those who are in it, and and it's easy to dismiss. And um, it's a complex issue, but what James does say to his the people to whom he's writing, uh, your wealth is going, judgment's coming, and commence weeping. <laughs> he says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Seems harsh. The Bible's focus on injustice, social justice, is unwavering. And what we're going to see, it's surprising the degree to which the Bible talks about social justice. Um, Micah, look what it says in Micah chapter 6, verses 8, 10. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And then he goes on to say, Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures, and the short ephah, which is accursed? When he talks about to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly, in the context, what he points to is business practices. You know what a short effa is? It's like the same thing if, you know, they have this trick, I guess, if you're in business and you used to weigh out produce using a scale. So you put the produce on the scale and you just finger goes on the scale. So you're giving somebody a pound of goods, but it's not really a pound of goods because you're exerting some force on the scale and you're able to give them less product per pound and you're able to pocket the difference. That's what he means by a short effa. Let me give you an effa of flour and it has a false bottom on it. So it's really not a full one. And when God looks at the things that I really don't like and he notices, that effa kind of a bushel with a false bottom. I don't like things like that. I don't like those who need goods. Buying goods from those who had the capital to be able to have land, etc., who are taking advantage of those people who need the produce to live and putting a little bit of extra money in their pocket. Now, when you look at what the prophets denounce in Israel. That's what they're denouncing. It's surprising the degree to which and the, the, the extent to which the prophets point to that as being an indicator of 
you're not acting justly. You're not loving mercy, and you're not walking humbly with God. What does God require to act justly? In the context, it has to do with social justice. Look what it says in Micah 3. Micah was a prophet who prophesied right before the northern kingdom of Israel went into captivity. It was a terrible time, but they, the northern kingdom was kind of doing pretty well, and it was like in the 740, 730, 720 B.C., Assyria was becoming very powerful. And it was at this time that Micah is trying to get the people to do the right thing. Because of imminent problems, people are doing what? Well, they're, they're looking to protect themselves. We talked last week. Who are you going to call? Who are you going to call? And God was encouraging them, call on me. But again, as is easy, and as we are very familiar with, um, they called on money. And because they were calling on money, have an ephah of flour, but it's not really an ephah. And so I'm going to put this away because I'm going to need it. I'm going to need to protect myself. And it's, that's the seduction of money. Money and God are rival deities. That's what we talked about last week. They make God-like claims. Money says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's why they put the finger on the scale and have the, the container that's not a full container. The more money I get, the more protected I am. From all the eventualities of life, money makes God-like claims. It's seductive in that way. We have to deal with it. We have to deal with it. And again, we could say, oh, I'm going to get rid of all my money. No, you aren't. No, I'm not. And what Paul's going to indicate, that's not even going to solve the problem. Um, goes on. Um, in terms of acting justly, it says, hear this you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right. Listen to what it says. For leaders judge for a bribe, for priests teach for a price, and who prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. What Micah cites is really at the leadership level has to do with dishonest dealings by those in charge. It's, it's what God proclaims to the northern kingdom that says, trouble's coming, don't do this. No, your leaders are not the kind of leaders where in the secular and the sacred sphere, it was all about money. It was all about money. They must have had some similar programming that we hear today where those in a position of spiritual leadership are really indicating that serving God is the way to get a bunch of money. And, you know, and you can serve God and have money. But what Paul says, godliness is not a guarantee of wealth. So what I'm saying then, if you are wealthy, that doesn't mean that you're godly that God has blessed you. It might. I can't judge. But if you are not wealthy, that does not mean that God has not blessed you. That's what James says. He talks about the poor as being rich in faith. And a hundred years from now, well, you know what they say. You know what I haven't seen? We have a Yukon, and it has a trailer hitch in the back. You know where I don't see trailer hitches on? Hearses. 
You don't see anybody carrying along a lot of garments or gold and silver, stocks for that matter, 401ks, bank accounts. You don't see a bunch of hearses carrying goods into the next life. And that's what James is pointing out. Wealth is temporary, but God isn't. And as a protector, he's the one, and he wants to teach us to look to him. It's not just about business practices. Um, what the prophets had issues with is not just the business practices, but that the religious system supported them. The idea that the temple was in their midst was seen as a form of entitlement. You know, So we can do what we want because we've got the good old temple right here. This is God's house. <laughs> And it doesn't really matter what we do because where do we live? Right next to, you get it, God's house. And God will never allow his house. So here's an ephah of flour. Have a pound of meat. And yeah, you're still there, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and that's the thing that the prophets end up talking about on God's behalf. But isn't that what Jesus did too? When he was in the temple, the reason why he tipped over the tables, he said, you're turning this into a marketplace. It's a marketplace. This is really about money. And again, we have to use money. But he, he, he described some who came to the temple as using it as a holy hideout. Uh, and when the, the prophets encourage us to, to act justly, act justly, fair, business practices to the degree that we can, not taking advantage of those in need. In fact, going and doing what we can to support those in need. Act justly, love mercy. Mercy is covenant faithfulness. Faith expressed in love is the mark of authentic faith. When it talks about loving mercy, it's not just saying, oh, you know, that's a form of mercy, but mercy biblically is not an expression of an emotion. It's an expression of concrete support. That's what mercy is. It's covenant faithfulness. And what God talks about, don't love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Love with word or with tongue, but don't stop there. That's not mercy biblically. Mercy is when it doesn't just touch your heart, but it touches your wallet. Or it touches your appointment calendar. It moves your hand to make a call and to do something tangible. And at that time, there were a lot of needs. And, and God, Jesus, who existed, reveals God to us, tells us that that's what we're to be about. Um, the intensity of the focus is surprising at times. You've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. Familiar with them? And we know what Sodom and Gomorrah were objectionable because, don't we? Don't we? Yeah, it was the sexual practices in Sodom and Gomorrah. And those were a problem. But when it talks about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah in Ezekiel, guess what? It doesn't talk about their sexual practices in Ezekiel. Look what it says. Ezekiel 16. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. He's talking to Jerusalem, and he's comparing them with Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is what he says. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. 
Well, hmm. sometimes we have a sense that what God really zeroes in on are moral issues. Adultery, fornication. Now, are those objectionable? Is that what God points to as being that arrogant, unconcerned, overfed? We have a tendency to believe that morality is what really tips God's boom. And again, is that an issue? Yeah, it's an issue. But you know what really tips God's thing? Lack of mercy. Hoarding. Not sharing. Selfishness. That's what tips God. Because God is not like that. He takes of what he has and gives it freely. He sends his son. And we have the sense that we understand what trips God's trigger. Interesting, isn't it? Now, was their decadence an issue? Yeah, the Bible talks about their decadence being an issue. I wonder, can I just throw a thought at you? What came first? The affluence or the decadence? What came first? Affluence or decadence? You think it was the decadence that led them to trust in affluence? Or was it the trust in affluence that led to the decadence. What do you think? Be a good discussion, wouldn't it? I think we could make a point, couldn't we? Remember when David ran into problems? It was at the time when kings go to war, and David didn't go to war. He didn't do the thing that most kings did. He stayed in the temple. You know, he's getting up about noontime. Oh, and he was, you know, he's outside taking a walk around, you know, having a cold one. Hey, who's that over there? <laughs> um, what came first? There was a sense of, I don't know, it wasn't affluence, but he didn't need to go to war. Sometimes the thing that protects us, doing the right thing, serving, faith expressing itself in love. We tend to feel like we need to stamp out things, stop doing bad things. How about this? Start doing good things, and you might find that it gives you power to stop doing bad things. You understand what I'm saying? Good things. Help people. Roll up your sleeves. There's something that comes with sharing, a sense of this is right, this is good. Um, love mercy. Walk humbly. To walk humbly Act justly. I have slides here. Love mercy. Walk humbly. I get to the end of the slideshow, and what occurs to me, I never even clicked once. So here I have, I will click them again. Here they are. Okay. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. There it is. I'm making up for last week. Uh, walk humbly. To walk humbly with God is to walk thoughtfully, circumspectly, and wisely. Um, when we talk about what to do, and so we could say, oh, okay, boy, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my wallet and I'm going to give all I possess to the poor. Um, empty, I'm, I'm, I'm going to liquidate everything. And 
there would be something that would feel, well, look, listen, listen to what Paul says. I don't think it's that easy. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Can I read that again? If I give all I possess to the poor, liquidate everything. I want you to think about your resources, the way we measure it, your bank account. Go down to the bank and withdraw it, all of it, your 401k. Cash it in, your retirement. Take everything and sell to the poor. And what Paul says, if there's no love behind it, you're not going to gain anything. So um, what, does, what does he mean by that? You know what I think? It, there's, here's what John says. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. If the reason we help the poor is because we're afraid not to, we're afraid that God's going to blow us up if we don't, there is no fear in love. I want you, I want you to understand what I'm saying. Love as a motivation and fear as a motivation are on different sides of a seesaw. To the degree that fear is the motivation, love is not the motivation. And to do the right thing for the wrong reason nets how much profit? You gain nothing. So love can be the motive or fear can be the motive. But love and fear cannot be the motive. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. If the reason that we do what we do is to escape getting nailed by God, we might empty our wallet. But if it's for the purpose of buying him off so he won't send the goons to us, you gain nothing. So you just can't do the right thing for the wrong reason. You have to do the right thing for the right reason, which is love. How do you do that? How do you do that? How can love be the reason you do the right thing? Peter helps us. The last verse we'll look at. Look what it says. We did a series on this. I really, really like the path of righteousness. It's a great verse. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. What it, seems, what it says there, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's extending it. Everything you need for life and godliness. And these through his glory and his goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises. This is what it's saying. Divine power channels itself through glory and goodness and appears to us as promises. If you want to access God's, God's glory and goodness and his divine power, you know what you need to grab? Promises. Promises. God's promises, once we and as we consider them, internalize them, when God becomes the one we are calling on because we're aware of his promise. See, money's always going to promise you things. 
It's in advertisements. Get the thing that you need, and then you'll be protected. We don't have to think about money's promises. It shouts, get me. I will never leave or forsake you. In fact, you'd have to, you'd have to go into a cave not to hear it. God's voice is quieter, and you're going to have to tune it in. But tune it in, because you know what God says? Cast your glance at riches, and they're going to be gone. I will never leave you and forsake you. God will still be your source of protection in life. A hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, God's help, his protection is eternal. Wealth's protection is a vapor, a mist, something that seems protective but ultimately is not. What am I saying? Focus on his commitments to you. You know what will happen? You'll start to see him as your protector. And the reason you do what you'll do will move from fear to to because in order for fear to not be the motivation, I'm not going to tell you try to get over your fear of God. Now, some of us, we were raised with a God that we were terrified of. And he is not the real God. So what do you do? How do you get rid of the fear? You could try to to jump up on this side of the thing and push it down. i give you something easier to do. Rather than, you know how hard it is if you get stuck on a seesaw? You ever do that with a you know, big guy and then you have to kind of crawl up on the other side and try to, you know, and then the guy on the other side jumps off and you end up going, and not that that's ever happened. I, I, anyway, so you know what you do? So if this is fear as a motivation, your, your fear motivation is high. Your love motivation is low. You've got to take care of your motivation. So here's what I would suggest. Rather than trying to decrease your fear, why don't you try to increase your love? You know how you do that? Focus on his promises. Here's what's going to happen. No joke. It happens over time. Perfect love drives out fear. You know what's happening now? You're doing the right thing for the right reason. And because you're doing the right thing for the right reason, you're not gaining nothing. You're gaining something. You're able to give of yourself because God is the one that you call on because you're thinking of what you can call on him for. That makes sense, doesn't it? How much room do you have in your mind for the promises of God? If you want to escape the lure of money, the trap, of affluence, if you want to be able to have money as a servant rather than a master, what I'd suggest, replace fear with love as a motivation. Love will drive out fear, and love will touch your wallet. It will generate not just good words, but good deeds. You become more like Jesus. Let's sing a song as we close. Let's pray. It says in Second Peter, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance goodness, 
goodness, godliness, brotherly kindness unto brotherly kindness love. Yeah, it seems to say if faith is going to end up as love, it's your divine power that's going to provide the fuel. And that accesses us through glory and goodness. It ends up coming into our tank as promises through these, the very great and precious promises. We partake in the divine nature. We don't imitate it. We participate in it. And we escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That comes from your promises. They give us a, an, an energy that we can't get any other way. So I guess I'd ask that you would help us to make more room for them so that in, in a more natural way, over the years, gradually, progressively, slowly, but inexorably, we would put more weight on you. It doesn't happen overnight. You don't need it to. You're patient. You're gentle. You're not cracking a whip. You're extending an invitation. Would you help us to put more of the weight of our security on you so that out of love we would reach out to those who have less? Help us be like Jesus, his name. Amen.